The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The Everyday Wealth Radio Show and Podcast are produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Ms. Chatsky and Ms. O'Brien are not employees or clients of the firm. They receive fixed cash compensation for acting as hosts and related activities and therefore have an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everyday-wealth. The 2021 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm Ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory records, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2021 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien, personal finance expert Gene Chatsky, and Edelman Financial Engines wealth planner Isabel Barrow. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky, Soledad O'Brien, and Isabel Barrow. So, have you heard about the butter crisis. Oh, yeah. Just as we are headed into the season of buttery pumpkin pies and porterhouse rolls and turkey basting, inflation is taking a toll on butter. Grocery prices overall, they're up 13.5% over the past 12 months. That's higher than the overall inflation rate, which is sitting at 8.3%. But the price of butter, it's up 24%. The Wall Street Journal even went as far to suggest that we might want to have a look at margarine. I will take a hard pass on that. Look, I know that the price of this one precious ingredient is not going to stop many of you from making your favorite recipes on Thanksgiving or Christmas, but it sits in this landscape of gas prices, which are still up 25% year over year, and energy prices up 16%, which is why I am always, always happy to be able to turn to the places where inflation is actually good news. Today, we're going to turn to how inflation may mean good news when it comes to your taxes. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky. I'm Isabel Barrow. And I'm Soledad O'Brien, and you are listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth. So rarely do we talk about the IRS and in the same sentence use the words good news. It just (laughs) really does not happen pretty much at all, ever. But there will be annual inflation adjustments for the year that's almost here, 2023. I've moved on practically. 2023, as far as I'm concerned, is is here. We're working on it now. Uh, And given how high inflation was in August, of course, that would mean you'd have a real impact on, on dozens of tax provisions. So, Isabel, I guess what I'd like to understand is which provisions should we be most thinking about and, and what will that impact be? So what's happening is written into the tax code is some inflation protection. So you know how it has felt like for the last decade that IRA limits and 401k limits, tax brackets are all kind of the same and they haven't moved around? Well, that's because we haven't had a lot of inflation. So now that we have more inflation, we have also an expectation there's finally going to be some adjustments on the positive side for things like tax brackets, for 401k contributions, for um, IRA contributions. So what that could mean is 
even if you have, let's say, the same income next year as this year, your taxes next year might actually be lower. It could be a, a silver lining. You say could, Isabel, and and might. And I think it's important to underscore that, right? We, this is not happening as of this moment, but what are, are predicted, what are projections? Exactly. Yeah. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we have a lot of estimates based on factors that have contributed to this in the past. So basically how it works is the IRS has um, an alternate inflation protection measure that they look at, which is basically tied to like as a consumer, when you go out and you buy something and we are in an inflationary environment, what are you swapping it with to save money? And this is what goes into this calculation that then they're using to make some adjustments upwards on tax brackets. There are a few other pieces of, of potentially good news here too, right? When we look at the estate and the gift tax thresholds right now, each person can give away about $16,000 a year without having to file a gift tax return. That's expected to go up to $17,000. does not sound like a lot, but there's a multiplier effect, right, Isabel? Absolutely. And so again, projected to go up to $17,000. But now consider that if you're giving money with a spouse and you're giving money to two children or to multiple grandchildren, now you're talking about potentially tens of thousands of dollars more that you're going to be able to pass along to your heirs or your beneficiaries without having to file a gift tax return. You can actually give away a lot more than that in any given year. Now, there are some parameters around how you need to do that in terms of tax filing. There's something called a Form 709 that you need to file, but you can go actually all the way up to your lifetime gift exemption, which is around $12 million this year, but could be as high as even $13 million per person next year. That is a lot of money. And while it will certainly impact a good number of people, I'm actually excited about what you brought up before that. The 401k contribution limits could actually go up and they could go up significantly. Mercer, which is a major benefits consulting firm, is predicting that the 401k contribution could actually jump by $2,000 for 2023. And for any one of you who are maxing out already, that is really good news. Absolutely. And, you know, also some other things in addition to just the 401k contributions, our standard deduction is projected to go up. So if you're someone who, let's say you don't itemize, you don't have enough deductions to itemize in your taxes, your standard deduction might be going up by $2,000 as, as well. So there's all of these different factors that go into, you know, what your actual tax rate is, including deductions, et cetera. But another piece of this is that the tax brackets are actually going to be potentially moving as well. So where, you know, let's just say, for example, you had $10,000 of income that was at a, let's say, a hypothetical 10% tax bracket. Well, okay, now you pay $1,000 in taxes. And in the current system, now you have another, let's say, $5,000 of income in the next year, so a total of 15000 and maybe that next bracket is 20% on the, the next 5000 So now you pay 1000 on that for a total of $2,000 in tax. But now, if let's say the bracket goes up and the, bra the new bracket is all of your income up to 15000 is taxed at the 10%, now your total tax is 
$1,500. So it's quite a bit less, saving you $500. So in essence, and that's just a hypothetical example. Those are not real tax rates and not real income tax brackets. It's the way we like to do math in big round numbers that end in zeros. So when we do the division in our head, it all makes sense. I fully understand that. Are there people, Isabel, who might be left out of any of this? I think for most people thinking about maxing out their 401ks or thinking about maxing out IRAs or figuring out, you know, really how to be as efficient as possible with their taxes. I think when you look at all of these things together, you know, making an extra couple thousand dollar contribution into your 401k, now having the tax brackets changed, now being able to potentially gift a little bit more annually if that's something you want to do, all of that boils down to kind of this concept of, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. So it's thinking about all this tax efficiency and how you can really utilize it to keep more of your own money. Does all of this just sort of raise a flag that you should be talking to your advisor? I certainly think that any time you have a, let's say, material financial change in your situation, whether or not it be a change in income, a change in your net worth for some reason, let's say you sell a home or you get a bonus, these are all areas that are great conversations to have with a a financial planner. It's really important to address this all as it relates to your overall financial plan. And that is where a financial planner comes into play. Give us a call at 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com. It really does come down to what you keep. We can help you with that. 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com. Each week we talk about growing wealth. We cover the obstacles, the different strategies that you can use, and even when it might be time to be boring and do nothing. We've got to take a short break right now, but when we come back, we're going to talk about what you need to think about once you've accumulated some wealth. And now you're thinking about creating a legacy that could be a foundation for future generations. So stay with us. I'm Jean Chatsky here with Soledad O'Brien and Isabel Barrow. You're listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth. We're back in just a sec. Markets are volatile and there's talk of recession. It's time to take action. Talk to an experienced wealth planner from Edelman Financial Engines. Call 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com. That's 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com. So a few weeks ago, I celebrated turning 56 years old. Thank you for all the presents and the well wishes. Uh, To me, the number's not really a big deal. Um, But what I did think about was that I have been working for virtually like 36 years. And that's in a very, very long time. I got into the workforce when I was, you know, really just 20 years old, 21. And, you know, you, you start after college or maybe high school or after trade school, and then you keep moving forward. You tackle your goals, you get promoted, you move up, maybe some things go awry, but you try to do everything right. You keep going, you save, you invest, you hustle. And if you're like me, you maybe you learn that hustle from your parents. So now, you know, you're in your 50s or in your 60s and you realize like, oh, I got a little chunk of money saved. Maybe it's a million dollars, which has a very nice ring to it. Maybe it's $2 million. Maybe it's even more than that. But if you're thinking, I now have money that could possibly change the futures of my kids and their kids, probably time to really think about what's next. And we're going to talk about what you need to consider as you look at the wealth that you've worked hard for. And you're thinking, well, now what? 
especially if you're the first in your family, maybe who's ever able been able to really build something. And you're thinking about how exactly you can leave it for future generations. And this is not the same, Soledad, as what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, about those baby boomers who are transferring massive amounts of wealth. This is more about people in our generation, the Gen Xers who are accumulating a million dollars, two million dollars, and they want to start passing that money or at least thinking about passing that money along to their kids and their grandkids. Listen, before you do anything, you know, you've got your million dollars and you're thinking about giving it away or you're thinking about how much of it you can spend or I'm going to retire because I've built this pot. Stop because it may not be as much as you think it is. So stop, talk to your planner, talk to a planner. If you don't have a planner, you can reach out to us at Edelman Financial Engines. We are at 833-PLAN-EFE, or you can also find us at planefe.com. Again, that's 833-PLAN-EFE, or visit planefe.com. Isabel, I imagine clients come to you once they've reached that certain threshold, that certain fantastic number, as Soledad was saying, and they start thinking more and more about building the legacy. That must be one of the really fun conversations that you get to have. It's a great conversation to have because it is, you know, somebody's coming to you with, say, you know, I want to do something with my money that is going to bring me joy. It's going to bring me joy to pass this money on to my heirs and see what they're going to do with it. I had a client recently who um, had a goal to not only leave money to, to kids, but also to leave money to charities, but he was doing it during his lifetime. And, you know, sometimes that's a tough conversation to have because the question is, do you have enough money? To do that, you know, Soledad, to your point, you know, you've saved a million dollars. Congratulations. You have just reached an enormous milestone in your life. And you're thinking, I am now a millionaire, right? I'm set. I'm rich. I'm good to go. But, 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 but there is a but. But if that's a million dollars that you have going into retirement and you say, all right, that was, I reached that number that I had in my head. And so now I'm going to do it. What does that really equate to in terms of income? And these are rough estimates, right? So what you take is really relevant to your specific situation. But in general, if you have a million dollars, you can generate somewhere, let's say 3000 a month, maybe $40,000 a year before taxes. So now you have to look at, you know, is that going to be enough for you? And the younger you are when you retire, so if you retire at, let's say, 62 instead of 70, now the amount you can comfortably take off that million dollars is quite a bit less. It might be closer to $30,000 a year. You know, you'll have potentially social security or maybe some other income streams coming in, but that million dollars is a lot less when you break it into taking it monthly for the rest of your life. One of the findings from behavioral economists is that big numbers make people do crazy, sometimes stupid things. Yes. Right. And the bigger the numbers, the more crazy and the more stupid. And that's why I think you have to just pause. You have to just stop, right? For many of you, this million dollars has been grown over 30 or 40 years of a career. You've got one opportunity to get it right. And that's hard, Isabel, because if you make a misstep, you could actually find yourself 
way behind when it comes to making the money last for your entire life. I think that's why that bias of sort of hanging everything on a number can be really kind of tricky and potentially dangerous as it relates to sort of your overall planning. And if you now say, well, you know, I need this 1 million because you've figured in your head that that's the right amount for you. Well, I have, I have 2 million. So I'm going to go ahead and give away the other million to my charities and my, my family and, and whatever during my lifetime. And that can be really tricky because you haven't taken into account potentially what are the changes that are coming. You know, if, if you made this plan five or six years ago and you were calculating 2% inflation in your plan and now you see that inflation is more like 8%, you know, how does that now new increased amount impact you're being able to leave that legacy. You're being able to give away that million. Because if you are looking at this with a financial planner and, and we we're running, you know, the spreadsheets and we we're running projections and we were kind of looking at how this money's going to last over your lifetime, we may find that you need that other million to cover you for all the inflation projections and healthcare expenses and all those things that are coming down the pike that you may not have considered. But isn't there a point, Isabel, where you really notice that the compounding kicks in, you really start to see your money growing, and you realize that that you will have an opportunity to do good things with it. A place where you can really see that in action is in your 401k. You know, as your 401k grows, you're continuing to make those contributions. So you're adding your $20,000, let's say, per year, but now you have a 10% hypothetical return on your million dollars. Well, that's $120,000 that your 401k just grew within that year. You know, and you have to also remember that you're always investing if you're contributing uh, money every single month. And big numbers beget big numbers, right? So we talk a lot about Elon Musk. I know, Soledad, you have conflicting opinions about him. Let's discuss how much money he makes, not per year, not per month, but per minute. Do you guys want to a take lot. a guess? A guess. Yes, a Just lot. Guess. Here's my guess. A lot. A whole heck of a lot. A whole heck of a lot. Guess. Right. Per because hmm. because his money is compounding so quickly, he's got a net worth of almost $250 billion. Oh my gosh. He makes almost $900,000 a minute. A minute. I mean, more money, more money than many people make in their lifetimes, which is compounding to the nth, nth, nth degree. But, you know, when we're looking at the impact of all of this, when we're looking at our money growing on our money, how much of this counts toward our, our net worth? So you have to kind of think about what are my assets? What are my liabilities and what are my income needs? And I think you also have to kind of think about two different pots of money, one of which is money that you can actually live off of and money that you are using or, or let's say assets that you're using in another way. For example, your home, your car, let's say art or family heirlooms, you know. So you have to then say, okay, these are just other assets that are adding to my net worth, but maybe not as it pertains to my actual financial plan and what I can use to live off of. So how do you figure out a strategy of how much you're going to need and fulfill all the things that you want to do. I want to make sure I'm living this kind of way. And I also want to make sure I do give money to my local charity, that I do leave some money for my kids. How, how do you navigate that? 
it starts with just writing out what your current expenses are. That, you know, for me, that is a really great tool to just write it down. Keep track of what you spend first and then add in all of the things that you want to be included in this retirement income picture. So that's the first place to start. So we can figure out what that big number needs to be, whether or not it's a million dollars for you or $10 million for you. The point is that you need to know how much you're going to spend in retirement. You need to at least have some sort of a good analysis of how you're going to live and where you're going to live and what the taxes are going to look like and how often you're going to travel. And you need help with that. A planner can really help with that. And if you've got somebody that you're talking to, that's great. If you don't, you can call 833-PLAN-EFE and talk to Isabel or one of her 300 colleagues or visit planefe.com because Isabel, like you say, it really does come down to what you keep. We've been talking about leaving a legacy. What are the right ways to do that? How can you do that? How do you know if you are financially in a situation to be able to do this? And you may be the first one in your family who's ever had to face this. You may be the first generation of wealth that is actually considering leaving a legacy. And it can be really challenging to understand how to do that because you don't have a playbook. You didn't inherit money from your parents. And so you're trying to understand what's the best way to do this. And you got to stop and think about, can I do it first? I think for a lot of people who are first gen, like my parents, they literally, I think when they made it, they understood the degree to which generational wealth was a real advantage to other people, right? They got it. They understood that being having someone who could help pay for college, having someone who could help fund things was really a tremendous advantage. And so I'm always curious on on where you start, because my mom and dad immediately started helping us to the point where we had to push back on them and say, like, no, don't give away your money. You don't know how long you're going to live. And you have a lot of grandkids. It's it's such an important point about longevity, Soledad, because when our parents were coming up, people were not living as long as we're living today. We're looking at living well over 100 in some cases. I, I mean, that's very scary to me. I know it's very exciting for you. We've, we've talked yes. about this, but, but I will look good at a hundred. Let me promise you. Will, you will look running. great at a hundred. I am, I am sure. I am sure that you will But I don't want to outlive my money. I don't want to outlive my money no, that's, at a hundred. That's, that's the fear, sure. right? And, and yes, I want to help my children. I want to help my community. I want to help the causes that I care about, but I don't want to run out of money. And so I've had these discussions with my advisor about, should we be gifting to our kids on a regular basis? Should we be putting money into trust for them that we can't get back if we need it? Because we not only live to 100, we live to 110 or 115. I'm just going to get very sweaty and, and nauseous here. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's important, right? It's not... It's a calculation based on things that we don't know the answer to. And that just makes me really nervous. You know, I think, Jean, to your point, you know, it is scary. And people can get stuck into a trap of but in both directions, right? So on one hand saying, I'm going to overspend and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start spending down and I'm going to give away my money and I'm going to do all these things. But then there's also on the flip side where you get kind of trapped into this fear of, I am going to run out, and so I am unwilling to spend it. And my opinion is that if you are having those concerns, 
the best way to alleviate them is to go through the numbers. I mentioned that my, in the past shows, I've talked about my parents setting up 529 plans for their 22 grandchildren, which was, it's a lot of kids and a, a lot of money. But I think that they felt that that was the the smartest way to in, invest in helping a kid get a good education. And of course, I think 529 plans, um, I have, I mean, we've talked about this in the past, have some really tremendous benefits. Yeah, I think... A 529 is an excellent place to start. They have low minimums. You are putting away money for what's called qualified education, which used to be just higher education, but now it's quite a bit more flexible. So you might even be able to use it for your grandkids, you know, or a portion of it up to $10,000 per year for your grandkids' elementary school, for example. So 529s, it's, it's a great place to start to be able to, and you can actually, you can know, sort of see and, and, and reap some of the benefits of, of your money and watching what it's doing for your children and grandchildren during your lifetime. And in general, 529s can actually be pretty flexible because if you set it up, it's actually money that's still in your name um, until you're using it for the children to go to school. What a lot of people will also do is to look at UGMA and UTMA accounts, which are gift to minor accounts. They're a little bit less flexible, but also a popular vehicle for giving money to, um, to heirs and beneficiaries during your lifetime. Well, the big difference here, Isabel, is the ability to claw the money back if you need it, right? When we're talking about 529 college savings plans, you put the money in, your intention is to use it for the child or the grandchild or the niece or the nephew or whoever your beneficiary is. But if you need it, you can get it back. You will have to pay a 10% penalty on the growth of the money. With UTMAs and UGMAs, you've given that money away. And the same is true of many trusts, right? If we have irrevocable trusts, you are putting money in and acknowledging that you are not getting that money back. So can we talk about when trusts start to become appropriate, why you'd want to have a trust? It's such a good question and one that I get all the time because you're listening thinking, well, I'm not wealthy enough to have a trust. And that's what everybody thinks. But really, that's, I think, because of a fundamental misunderstanding of how trusts are now used. But now that the estate tax exemption is much higher, you don't need a trust for the, the tax breaks per se. It's more having a trust because of the nature of how the trust can control and maintain your assets during your lifetime and then also have some control over how your assets are spent in the future. You're talking about gifts with strings attached and, and you have to be careful about how many strings you attach so that you don't get overly controlling. There are two different buckets of trusts. There are the revocable ones, which are sometimes called living trusts, and they're the irrevocable ones, and they're very different. Yes. So a revocable trust is money that you are putting into that you can get back at any time during your lifetime. You know, you can put it in that trust. If you spend all the money, 
so be it, you know, the trust is closed and, and there's nothing left. An irrevocable or irrevocable trust is one that is um, money you put in that you can't get back. Money that's in your revocable trust would be included in your estate regardless of, of how much it is. And so you might be thinking like, well, then why do I even want to have it if it's not going to, you know, do me any favors from a tax perspective? What's the point? Well, the point is, is that you might have that trust to say, for example, you have three kids, one of them is disabled, and the other two are married and have their own children. Number one, if you leave money to that disabled child outright, you could actually end up costing them money in terms of benefits long-term. So you may need something that's called a, a special needs trust to separate money out of your estate for that disabled child who might be receiving some public benefits. But now you have the other two children and you have this trust um, set up for their benefit after you die. And one of them is potentially in the process of getting a divorce. And so now you're thinking about, okay, I'm, I'm leaving money to my child. And if I leave it to them outright, is it going to be marital assets? Is this going to be money that, you know, gets split now between them and, and their newly to be divorced spouse? Or, you know, if you leave it in a trust, it may be more protected from getting split up in the case of a divorce. Or if one of your children were to predecease you and, you know, you want to protect money for their grandchildren instead of their, their widow or widower who may then get remarried. You know, so basically the bottom line is, is you're, you're kind of keeping control over how your money gets used, how your money gets um, divvied up in the way that you, you want when you're not around anymore to be making that call. I guess you have to walk through that thoughtfully, right? Because you could put limits on it. You could say, this is going to be for your first home, you know, which sounds amazing. But if that person has a medical emergency, then, you know, you've suddenly put a limit on money that they could use that I think if you were alive, you would have been fine with. So I, I think it makes sense to be very thoughtful and maybe even sit down with your financial planner around, you know, where are the traps, where are the potential problems in creating those protections? You have to be really careful about what you put in there and make sure that it really does accomplish what you intend. I oftentimes have those discussions with my clients and their families and their estate attorneys. And if you don't have a financial planner that you're comfortable talking to about this, um, then feel free to reach out to us. We're available at 833-PLAN-EFE or you can visit planefe.com. Okay, we're going to switch gears is what we're going to do. Up next, we are going to shift a little bit. We're going to we're going to move on to our segment called Investing Sense with Dr. Wei Hu where we talk about the behavioral aspects of investing. You know I love this stuff. I'm Jean Chatsky here with Soledad O'Brien and Isabel Barrow. You're listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth and we'll be right back. It's no secret the market's been volatile, and now we're hearing talk of the R word recession. With all this uncertainty, one thing's clear. It's a great time to talk to an experienced wealth planner. At Edelman Financial Engines, we'll show you smart steps you can take in today's market and mistakes to avoid. Move forward with confidence. Call 833-PLAN-EFE or visit planefe.com to connect with a wealth planner. That's 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com. 
It is time, and I love this time, for our segment that we call Investing Sense, where we focus in on the behavior of investing and some of the traps that we all might fall into. This month, Dr. Wei Hu, Vice President of Financial Research for Edelman Financial Engines, is joining us to talk about hindsight bias. Wei, welcome back. It's always great to have you. Nice to see you. Thanks, you guys. Great to be back again. With the market in a sustained downturn this year, way it's it's really tempting to just look back and say, "Hey, we should have seen this coming." I guess my question is, should we have seen this coming? Yeah, so that's a very understandable uh, instinct. Uh, so you know, the newspapers give us a very neat summary of how we got here. You know, so uh, you know, there's inflation coming out of you know, the, the end of the quarantine, largely in the U.S. economy. Then there was the war in Ukraine that helped uh, also kind of fan the flames of inflation. And then now the Fed has to raise interest rates to fight inflation. And that is causing fears of a, re- a recession uh, that we might already be in. And that hurts uh, stock prices and the higher interest rates hurts bond prices. So it feels like this was all destined to happen. And that that feeling uh, is really evidence of a persistent behavioral bias that, that's called hindsight bias. But what is hindsight bias exactly? Is it just hindsight? Like, looking back now, boy, I can mm-hmm. see it. Uh, one part of it is that people actually revise their opinions of what they thought was going to happen afterwards to fit the facts. So an example of this is there is a study of failed entrepreneurs, you know, failed startups, and at the outset, when they asked their opinions, uh, about three quarters of them thought they would succeed. Uh, but after they had failed and after they had quit, uh, only 59% of them thought that they would have succeeded. So it's not just that they changed their predictions to adapt to new information. They actually distort their memories of what they thought afterwards. And so that consequence that, of that revision of history is that uh, some people can start believing that they uh, actually predicted what already happened, and then they start getting overconfident about what might happen in the future. And that overconfidence leads to a lot of not-so-great decisions, such as market timing decisions with their investments. And we know that those don't tend to work out very well. I'm curious why we have hindsight bias. Is it connected Mm. to that sense of self confidence, I guess? It is. We distort our memories to, um, to fit the facts afterwards. Uh, that, it, that's really related to our innate tendency to put ourselves in the best light. So we'll change our memory of what we predicted to make ourselves look good, better than we actually deserve to in many cases. Well, so getting back to what got us here and the difference between bad luck and something that is likely to happen, wouldn't you say it was obvious that we would end up with stocks falling this year? Bonds maybe a little bit less so, but but definitely stocks. This is where it gets tough to, to look back in retrospect. And there's a couple of ways to think about it. So if you look at the actual news headlines in early January, when the market was at near its peak, you won't find a ton of predictions that actually panned out with how things have evolved this year. Uh, so, you know, when the markets had hit a new peak, 
uh, you know, not everyone was pessimistic by definition, because if everyone was pessimistic, then they would not have bought stocks at that high level back in January. Uh, so another way to convince ourselves that it wasn't obvious that stocks should fall this year is to kind of do a sanity check on yourself and and ask, did I predict what was going on, what was going to happen back in January? And if I did, did I actually have the conviction to sell out of stocks? Uh, and I think the honest answer for the majority of us is no. And actually for the vast majority of professional fund managers, the answer is also no. Uh, because if most investors had actually believed and predicted the stock market would decline, then they would have sold out of, the, out of stocks. And that's when the decline in, in stock prices would have happened. So how do you avoid hindsight bias? Because all these things that you're ticking off seem to be to be very much built into our DNA. Confidence, bad memories, not really tracking things in the long term, not really wanting to admit you were necessarily wrong. Yeah. So one way to start on that is to talk to other people, whether it's your friends or your family members, and and see what predictions they have and do their opinions, when you hear their opinions, do you change your mind? If you do change your mind, then you should be kind of honest with yourself and say you don't have a high confidence in your prediction, whatever it is, whether you think stocks are going to recover from here or continue to, to fall from here. A little bit more work than that, um, you could actually start writing down your feelings about investments uh, maybe once a week or even once a month, Where what you think is going to happen in even f- whether it's in financial markets or geopolitics, if that's your it's, that's where you kind of suffer from overconfidence and hindsight bias the most. Uh, but also, not, don't just write down what's going to happen, what you think is going to happen, but write down when you think it's going to happen. So it's not enough to just say, I think stocks are going to fall at some point. Uh, if you wait long enough, stocks will fall eventually. And then you can say, oh, <laughs> I was right. right. You know? And another thing you could do, actually – Keep track of kind of a paper portfolio where you you write down what trades you would make, and then you can track the performance of that over some lengthy time period, not just a few months, and compare it to more more of a steady portfolio at a similar risk level. And sometimes you'll have made the right call just by sheer luck, but chances are, like every one of us and, and like most professional investors who do this full-time, you won't beat the market on a systematic basis. And then finally, uh, uh, you know, probably the best thing to do is to talk to a financial advisor. Uh, so an experienced advisor will have been through good markets and bad markets, and they'll know that trying to get in and out at the right times is basically impossible. Missing even a few of the best days in the market, even during a bear market, could seriously reduce your returns by many percentage points. And that those few really good days can actually come when uh, when we're in the middle of a bear market and things look really really grim. Uh, those can be some of the some of the best days, best single days in the stock markets. And if you have somebody that you're already talking to about these things, that's great. You just pick up the phone and you call them. But if you don't, and you're looking for somebody who could be that personal sounding board for you. One of the 300 plus advisors from Edelman Financial Engines would 
love to help. You can pick up the phone and you can call 833-PLAN-EFE or visit them on the web at planefe.com. I think sometimes you just need this voice of sanity and, and having a good financial advisor can really provide that. So we're out of time, but thank you so much, Wei, for joining us for Investing Sense. Dr. Wei Hu is the Vice President of Financial Research for Edelman Financial Engines, and he joins us every month to help us understand the behavioral aspects of investing. Gene Isbell, as you know, I find that like why we do what we do with our money. So, so fascinating. And of course, if any of you have a a question or a topic that you'd like us to discuss on air, just visit everydaywealth.com to submit your question. And together with an EFE Wealth Planner, we'll talk you through some potential solutions that would be personal for you. And if you want to catch a show that you might have missed, you can always pick up the podcast. Oftentimes, the podcast will actually have an extended version of the show that we're not able to air on the radio because of time constraints. You can download our podcast at everydaywealth.com or wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute, leave us a review. We love feedback. So if you like what you hear, or even if you don't, we want to know about it. Also, take a second and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Have a great week, everybody. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien, Gene Chatsky, and Isabel Barrow. Tune in each week for fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.